Welcome, everybody, to Recovery Machine. My name's Nathan. I believe we're on episode 19. Is that right, Corey? I think so. Yep. All right. Joined here with my co-host, Corey. He's on location in Parksville on the island, I think. Yeah. Almost had a beautiful seascape view behind me, but the lighting was making it impossible to see me. So we need, trust uh, me, I'm here. We need a higher production uh, budget, (laughs) everybody. So uh, something to think about. (laughs) (laughs) Today, we are happy to be joined by Dr. Nick Jensen, who is a naturopathic doctor, him and his lovely wife, Sonia. They have a uh, naturopathic clinic. So they're both naturopathic doctors. And uh, I believe it's in Kitsilano and it's Mm -hmm. called Divine Elements. That's it. Yeah. Yeah. So you've been, uh, I think you guys have been open for a little while, right? Uh, almost a decade or more. Yeah. We, we opened in 2009. So just going okay. into our yeah, 13th, 13th year. Yeah. Very cool. So uh, pretty well established in the area. Whereabouts is it? It's, uh, I mean, for anyone who knows the Kitsilano area, it's we're right next to, uh, right nearby McDonald Street. So it's on right on Broadway, near McDonald Street. But it's on uh, Broadway and Stevens. Yeah, yes, I, yeah. I, I used to live very close to there, actually. Oh, yeah. no kidding. Where yeah, where else did you live? I would have, it would have been uh, 2005, 2006, and I would have been probably, I think, two, maybe two or three blocks up from you there okay. on, a, on 11th, somewhere yeah. around there. But yeah. It's a nice area. I mean, it's, it's, it's a very, I would say, health conscious, small town inside the city kind of a vibe. So yeah, we oh, love yeah. it here. It's uh, filled with beautiful people. Yeah. <laughs> my, my <laughs> There's a lot sister. of yoga around here. And, yes, yeah, yes. Smoothies. Yeah. yeah. My sister and her husband, uh, both very good looking people. They, uh, they, they're in Kitsilano now. And it's funny how well they fit in down there. And just, right. you know, <laughs> it's quite a culture. Yeah. There's a, there must be some sort of vortex that attracts people who, uh, who want to take care of themselves in, in this area. So I think there's something to be said there. Yeah. 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 It might be contagious. Yeah. I know. That's a good way of looking at it, actually. When my, my cousin, like I'm from Quinnell, and when I grew up, nobody, you didn't ever see anyone jogging. There was, you know, we had these kind of the gym was like people were starting to get into that. Right. And then I remember when I, when I moved from UB or from uh, Kamloops down to Vancouver, he came down, that would have been somewhere like 2009. And he's driving along in his truck. He gets into the city and he's like, what, what are all these people running from? Like he kept looking behind him thinking there was a problem. He's like, no, man, <laughs> they just exercise. Right. And he's like, what? <laughs> They're just trying to stay healthy. But, well, you, you uh, don't need that as much in Quinella. I mean, you're, you're slogging through the snow and you're, it's like every, every step feels like a stair climber. I imagine. Well, in the, yeah. the wintertime. <laughs> yeah. You're either shoveling snow or. Yeah. Yeah, outdoors, right? You're, yeah, you're yeah, 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 definitely. I suppose yeah. that's true. We'll get started with just sort of a little bit of a little bit more of your backstory, I, I guess. How did you how did you come into the world of of naturopathic medicine? What what factors sort of led you in that direction? And uh, yeah, how did you find yeah. it? To be, to be honest, I I think a lot of it. My my mom's been such a huge inspiration in my life, and she, we we grew up healthy, no, you know, no sugar. I, I played basketball up into college. And so living a healthy lifestyle was just part and parcel to, you know, to growing up. And uh, to be honest, I, I mean, when I, when I got out, 
uh, of college, I really knew that I just wanted to be in healthcare to some degree. And I thought dental school, I just wanted to make a lot of money. I, my parents told me that's a good, good business to get into. And, and the, <laughs> they seemed to do well for themselves. And I ended up writing uh, or doing the, the DAT, the, the dental aptitude test and just got my ass kicked. I just did not do well. You had to carve soap and it was very intricate and it was very stressful. And I was writing that DAT during my midterm exams in my last Ooh. year of college. And so I really didn't spend a lot of time studying for it. And I, and I had to do a bit of a gut check, I think, after I graduated and thought, okay, I, I have an idea of what my parents want me to do because uh, they want obviously me to take care of myself and not uh, be reliant on them, I'm sure. And, and, then, and then there's this sort of uh, insight for what is it that I really want to do? I knew that there was something to do with health. I had no desire to be a doctor. I, I tried to avoid doctors at all costs. It was a real... Um, you know, it would be a real strong reason to go in and maybe I'd be, you know, bleeding out at, uh, you know, some sort of surface of my body. And then I'd <laughs> consider going to the hospital. Uh, but the sight of blood and all that stuff was real, uh, not a, an attraction for me. And then after literally, I think it was the day that I graduated from uh, college. My mom gave me a pamphlet. She had seen a couple of naturopathic doctors. She said, Why don't you just read through this? And I read through the curriculum and I, I remember thinking like, wow, this is like, this is a really interesting stuff. Like they, they're learning homeopathy, herbal medicine, acupuncture, Chinese medicine. There's all these different components that really got me excited about, Oh, I could see myself doing this. I don't want to be a doctor, but I could see myself learning these things because I had such a deep interest and I didn't realize it did until I started seeing what, what kind of options were there. So that was, that was kind of the first little, little nudge in that direction. And so shortly after uh, graduating from college, I applied and got in and, uh, that's that's where it all began. Yeah, that's a, it's a really interesting field, and I don't think that uh, I, I remember. I had a couple of friends who were who were looking at uh, going that direction. It's very competitive, you know, as, as any kind of all the medical fields were. But the, I think the the naturopathic route there wasn't very many spots available at the time in Canada per year. Is that uh, was that the case when you went through? Definitely. I mean, you know, we, so I went to school in New Westminster. It's called uh, Boucher Institute of Naturopathic Medicine. There's only two schools in Canada. And so, yeah, there's a limited amount of space. It was, there was accepting, you know, in, into these two schools, there's only, there's about five schools from what I remember now in, in the U S or there was at the time. And I, I had no desire to pay tuition fees uh, in American dollars. And so I, and I, and it was great that there was something in our, in our backyard. So I applied and I think I just applied at the right time. And, and the school is sort of new and budding and they were only taking, taking, I think it might've been like 20, 25 people per class. Wow. And so yeah, it was a really small school. I mean, we, we really, when I entered the program there, they had yet to get accreditation. There was accreditation in, in Toronto where, where the school is more established, but this one was relatively new. And so the timing seemed right. And, uh, you know, and, and obviously there's no entrance exam. It was just taking, making sure I had all the prerequisite courses, all the same prerequisites you'd need for dental school or medical school or anything else. So it was, it was timing and the right fit and a new school. And it seemed like a fun opportunity. Yeah. Has it changed? Has it changed fairly rapidly since you've started? Oh my goodness. Yeah. In a big, big way. I mean, they changed, changed locations, uh, expanded. There's an onsite uh, clinic now, uh, which there was in our second and third, or sort of third and fourth year. It's uh, it's become much more robust. It's and it's now been 
and again, I don't know all the, all the details, but I know it's been amalgamated now with CCNM or the college from Toronto. This is kind of uh, their Western campus now. So I think it's all called CCNM, CCNM West or in, in East. But again, I've been, since being out of the school, school trauma is traumatizing, man. You know, you, you, you go there and it's completely opposite of what a, a naturopathic, you know, lifestyle might look like, you know, uh, you yes. rigorous, you know, pharma, pharmacology school. I mean, it's, it's ridiculous, brutal, right? Yeah, it's brutal. 90% of what uh, I learned there, I don't apply. And it's <laughs> like, I, that's okay because I'm, I'm interested in the field. I love that. Like, I like the, uh, anything chemistry, biology, I'm very interested in. And I love, I love to learn. Oh, yeah. But as far as application goes, man, it's in community pharmacy. It's like, yeah. you might as well, I mean, 30% of what I do is basically calming people down and uh, trying to get their medications faster and cheaper to them. <laughs> That's about it. Totally. <laughs> yeah. It, isn't it fascinating? I mean, it's, uh, you know, pressure makes diamonds, as they say. And I, and I think part of it is just, you know, going through this rigorous training and these like ridiculous number of exams and expectations and you know hoops to jump through and, and i know it just keeps getting more and more intense i think as each year goes on and sophistication of the programs come together and whatnot but yeah it's it's a different world in school versus out in you know this this version of the world mm-hmm. yeah so so how long after you graduate did you so i guess according to i, I looked uh, we were researching it, of course and uh, we see on your uh, bio there that it talks about you doing further, you wanted to go and look at other modalities in other countries, Southeast Asia. And uh, so you did a little traveling. Was that after school? And that's where you met your wife? Is that? Uh... Yeah. To be honest, halfway through my my naturopathic education, I, I realized there was a sort of meeting point of my early history of wanting to please my parents and, and doing it. Like I told you guys before we press record that like they still work seven days a week. Like there's no such thing as taking a break, let alone traveling the world and, you know, not making money sustaining yourself and all those things. Mm-hmm. But uh, there was this crisis point between uh, depression and just my own self-worth and living my own life. And this collision course of uh, what uh, the expectation of what I should be doing to fulfill, you know, my future. And, and halfway through naturopathic school, I, I said, screw it, I can't do this anymore. And so I took a year off and traveled the world and found myself or started to find myself at the beginning of that sort of in, internal and emotional and spiritual journey. And then uh, the biggest worry on my parents' end was I, I wouldn't I wouldn't come back. Right, right <laughs> you started right. something. You better you better finish this. And <laughs> and I held that in suspension. I didn't I didn't really tell them at the time, but I I knew in my mind that I had no idea what what the next year would look like. And you know, anyways, I came back and I had obviously an amazing adventure. So that was my first getaway uh, out of the world. And then yeah, when Sonia and I graduated, we went taught English in Taiwan for fourteen months and traveled through Cambodia and Thailand and. India. And uh, I mean, it was, it was a magical time to just not only just fall in love and create a deeper connection with one another, but also to travel the world. And, you know, uh, Sonia and I, we, we like to say that our number one bio hack is putting yourself in uncomfortable situations through traveling. And you mm-hmm. know, obviously we all have different stories of fumbling around <laughs> in different countries where you don't understand the language and screwing up and, and learning from those mistakes are invaluable. Yeah, so that, that was that was life before we actually opened up our practice here. Right. Yeah, there's something to do that for sure. Uh, it's a different, it's almost like you're using a different part of your mind or uh, I guess it just forces you to be in a, a kind of an elevated state 
when you're in a country yeah. when it, where English isn't the primary language, or if you've never been there before and you're trying to get around uh, with transit and stuff like that, it's it's uh, yeah, it's challenging. Definitely good for you. I've never thought of it as a as a biohack, but it kind of makes sense. Yeah, uh, well, anything it, it, you tap into resources you didn't realize you had it, because you're forced to. Yes. You, know, you have to get from point A to point B. You got to figure out how to do that. You got to eat food. You got to figure out how to order that or, you know, or buy it from the grocery store. And it's, it looks different than what you're used to. I mean, there's so much about, you know, cultivating, um, you know, confidence in yourself and just uh, your ability to overcome situations and to feel more connected, you know, to yourself and your intuition. And, and obviously, if you're traveling with someone, you're going to feel that sense of bonding and attachment and, and, uh, and, and still finding your individuality in it. You know, there's these little victories, whether it be, you know, getting, I mean, we've, we get, there was a time we were in Pai in Thailand and, and we were riding our scooter and trying to get to this amazing destination. And, uh, our, our scooter broke down and, you know, we're traveling. We, we don't really have a timeline. We, of course, we want to get to our destination for that day, but we're kind of like, you know what? Well, the scooter broke down. What are we going to do? Well, we just kind of sat at the side of the road and just, I mean, I opened up the the hood and I have no idea what I'm looking at, but um, anyways, at some point a family came along with a pickup truck and again, we're not speaking the language. They're like, come on, they threw the, the scooter in the back of the truck. We went for a ride. They took us to the shop, got the scooter fixed and on we went, you know, and there was no sense of dread or like worry. It was just kind of like, what else can we do? Let's start pushing this bike down the road and see what happens. And, you know, I, I think in this, in our Western world, I would have easily gotten rescued like that. I got the BCA card. I can call my mom or dad or a friend and, you know, it's, it's going to get taken care of. But when you're somewhere isolated, you just use the resource you have. And sometimes it's just patience and trust, you know? Yeah. So, so many lessons. Absolutely. And that must've been, that's kind of a trial by fire for a relationship too. Oh, totally. I mean, if you're traveling with somebody like that, it, uh, you see the real you know, the, the, the level of patience the person has, yeah. their stress tolerance, their ability yeah. to communicate effectively, work as a team. Uh, yeah, all that stuff's going to come out. And also, like you said, being able to maintain some kind of an individual self when you're mm. basically leaning on each other like that the whole time. So Big it'd time, be yeah. uh, kind of a, like you said, a bonding experience, but also, yeah, a really good trial run for if you're, uh, if you're thinking of doing something like getting married. Yeah, probably no a good doubt. way to do it. <laughs> <laughs> Trial by fire. That's exactly it. Yeah. yeah. So, Nick, can you give us an idea of of what the what a day in the life in your in your practice looks like a bit? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So much of our practice. I mean, our our philosophy is live it to lead it, and so there there's little to nothing that that I've recommended for people that I haven't done it myself. So, uh, I always I always really intentionally i mean every day is a little different you know we've got young kids so uh my morning practice isn't always perfect but ideally i do something every day to to serve myself and have some sort of connection to something greater than me and do my breath work my meditation my movement and so that kind of um philosophy of of ownership over over your your mental emotional state over your physical space over your physical body the nutrition you put in those are the those are the core essence i think of teaching that that we we want to you know extract out of the people that we that we work with uh, i mean especially in recovery there's you know in the world of recovery there's so much disconnect you know from that aspect of themselves you know and there's so much dependence right? Whether it be the medication, the, the drug, the, the alcohol, whatever. So, and that could just be a food addiction, right? 
And so I think step one is to really help people recognize that there's this, there's this capacity for connection. And sometimes it's really small, it's subtle, we don't really tune into it. And but if that can be the the merging point where we start to realize that there's a way out of the struggle that people are in, um, that would definitely be step one. And that can come through many different ways. Maybe it comes through embodiment with exercise and movement. Maybe it comes through a new appreciation of food. And we teach a lot of fasting that sometimes comes from a place of going uh, for a period of time without food and really getting in touch with that emotional body that comes up and speaks to us or, or yells at us, you know, Hey, it's 12 o'clock time to eat. Where's my food? You know, that kind of thing. And, and through supplementation and creating a new relationship to the kinds of things that really nourish us and, and what, what don't, uh, and the things that don't, you know, and that could be relationships and everything else. So that it's sort of like a coming to, um, I say God moment, but it's sort of coming to uh, meeting ourselves, you know, with, with people in the room, it's really about how, how are you willing to meet yourself now? And are you willing to establish a new connection to, to you and what's possible? And some people are, and some people aren't, you know, and it's not my place to tell people that where they have to be. It's more like, here's an opportunity to be here and, and we'll walk that path with you if you're ready. If they're ready. Yeah. There's probably, you've probably seen people who have the best of intentions, but are simply too disconnected from maybe yeah. their own body. Like you said, these the sensations that you feel when you're hungry. I don't think that in our culture, there's enough appreciation for learning what those signals mean and be able, be able, uh, being able sorry, to find ways to cope with those if they're uncomfortable. Myself, I grew up uh, kind of unwittingly uh, self-soothing with food and got away with it just because I was a, a bigger guy and active and stuff like that. But, you know, it that pattern was established before, well before I knew really what I was doing. I was already self-soothing in that manner. So yeah. it was it was an easy kind of move forward uh, for me into uh, addiction with drugs. Yeah. Well, I think it's imprinted on us from our surroundings. You know, we see, we just, you know, as kids, we just soak up the environment. We see, we, whether or not we intellectualize our parents going through stress, we see how they handle it. My dad was, was an alcoholic and it pains me to say that because, you know, I think it would, he would cringe if I even heard him or if you heard me say that, but uh, at some point he had to come to the realization that, that he had to address this. But we we saw we saw how he handled his stress, and again, not that I could intellectualize it at a you know five or seven year old. I just saw my dad getting drunk a lot, you know, throwing up on my skateboard or like oh, being really irritable at different times, you know, growing up and like, oh geez, I don't really want to be around my dad right now. Uh, he's drinking, and and you know, looking back, we can see you know so many of our behaviors could come from that. No, you know, going through my own sort of teenage partying years. Um, I, I saw an escape there and it was, it was an enjoyable way to, you know, spend some of my early years, but, you know, with, with many addictions and whether it be food or your attachment to TV or, you know, whatever it is, we, if we find solace in that experience until, you know, at some point it no longer serves us. And, and I think that, you know, to the point of are, are people ready to make a change? That's, that's sort of the, the realization I think we all have to come to because we're all guilty of like, not following through with plans. We all get lazy. You know, I, I know I do. I'm not perfect by any means. Mm -hmm. And I, but do we have a capacity to go, okay, I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to go at this again. I'm going to figure it out this time. Yeah. 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 I love how you said, uh, said the piece about 
kind of reestablishing a, a a connection with what we're feeling physically and and then what to do about it and to p- really to pay attention to that and like yeah. it, it makes me think about for myself like there was there was such a relearning about mindfulness and relearning about discomfort within my own body and how my own body was feeling and what I was doing to my body but then also that connection with the mind and, and that mm-hmm. discomfort from the mind for me at least the discomfort from the mind was much more uncomfortable than the discomfort within my body that i was feeling oh totally yeah. then, that's huge yeah yeah and so so let's maybe to take it down a, a road of someone maybe someone in who's still actively in addiction or someone who's in very early recovery if they came to you what would kind of how would you start with them and what, mm-hmm. what would be some things that that, uh, that you might recommend yeah. Uh, you know, I think, you know, we think of someone in, in that, you know, depending on how they're relating to their moment, you know, because some, someone who can be in active addiction could be in denial. Someone in active addiction could be, you know, really reaching out for help. And, and someone could have just got their butt pushed in here because their partner said, you better take care of this or I'm out of here. And so there's an ultimatum. And, and I think, you know, whatever that, that's the first thing to establish is like, why are you here? Yeah. You know, you know, really, why are you here? Uh, what brought you here? Because it's sort of a conversation of uh, willingness and um, desire for connection. And it's all those things. But, uh, you know, obviously, we want to try to meet people where they are. And, and I think, you know, to, to say, like, what to do next is that when we're stuck in that narrow focus of, you know, this is my entire reality, there's a lack of choice. It's like, I don't know anything else. You know, it's just it's so focused on the, on the problem. You know, we say this about pain too. You know, pain is the worst thing ever that, that it could ever happen. And when it's gone tomorrow, you forget for you forgot that it was there because yeah. you have more faculty, you got more choices. And so I think one of the first things once we orient people towards like, why are you actually here? Do you want to be here? Is this the right time for you? Of course, I want it to be the right time for everybody. I want people to move out of their suffering, but you know, again, that's out of my hands. But you know, my first opportunity is to help people physically feel more energy so they have more choices so if we want to get really reductionist we'd say we'd be doing things to optimize mitochondrial function you know we'd be taking out the sugars we'd be taking out the stresses the toxins the things that are overwhelming your system so that you stay so narrow in your focus because in that narrowed focus you've got a ton of inflammation and really low energy and so it's we get more choice when we have more energy on a cellular level dr nick i I couldn't agree more with the uh, statement about where are you now uh, as far as an opener. And I think, can you imagine, Corey, if if treatment centers started with that question? Somebody right. walks in and instead of, you know, most of the time it's mandated or like you said, mm-hmm. it's the end of the road before a marriage fails, whatever. There's a few people who go there willingly, but honestly, I didn't see many of them, uh, in this, like these centers that are, that are really pumping people through quite ineffectively. If they were to do something like that, imagine the efficiency increase right off the bat, because the people who actually want to be there, I mean, this is what, when people ask me, uh, for, uh, you know, my take on, on the problems that they're having, that's the first question I ask. What do you want? Do you really want to, do you want to make a change or are you making this change to make someone else happy? What's the motivating factor? And if it's anything else, then I want to make a change because I'm not happy anymore with the way things are going. This behavior is no longer serving me. Then I believe there's a real, uh, a good chance of turning, you know, making that change 
from that from that new perspective. But without it, different story. Well, it's it's an interesting point you bring up too. You know, you think about success rates in a lot of these places. If if like let's say seventy five percent, maybe that's even being conservative. Seventy five percent of the people don't really want to be there. Maybe twenty five percent do. Think about being in the energy of um, you know going back to maybe in our teenage years. The influence you could be wanting to do the right thing, but you're in a vibe, you're in a frequency, you're in a collective where people are going through something similar to you. You see the majority of them are like, I can't wait to get out of here so I can get back to my drink or whatever it might be. You know, that has massive influence. And so, yeah, what if we did have, you know, in these traditional or conventional recovery centers, what if we had the people that actually really wanted to be there and we could somehow find the right tools to filter those people into that right category. So they were actually separate. They were in their own little community or their own little cocoon or bubble where they could really be, there could be a lot of cohesive nurturing. What would that do, you know, and and do nothing else except for just that one thing. Uh, And that starts with that question, right? My God, you'd have the most successful treatment center (laughs) in the country. Immediately. Because you can build, you can build a program around that. And then those that don't really want to be there, what does that look like? You know, is that, yeah. you know, what kind of experience could you create for those people? Or, you know, this, this might be a really interesting uh, way to introduce plant medicine or other things like that, where, where, you know, it's sort of a kick in the pants, so to speak, you know, because well, maybe they don't really want to be there. And then they're, then they're just t- scratching <clears throat> something that's like, oh, I don't even know what that is. And I, I'm interested in taking a look at that again, yeah. you know, you know, I think the, the term, my impression is that the term rock bottom is sort of falling out of favor and that, that it's, it's being challenged, but I you, you do still hear people using the term rock bottom or that they haven't hit rock bottom. Mm-hmm. But I think that my experience at least, and, and I think probably Nathan, you might agree that it, it, it is more about maybe seeing the window, seeing the glimmer of hope or, or yeah. seeing the, an opportunity there for change. And, and and that and I don't blame the folks that, who who haven't seen that window yet because that can be very much environmental or circumstantial, or about family or about trauma or a host of a host of things, and and education I think is certainly probably a part of that. Um, I loved what you said too about providing someone with more energy or helping someone to obtain more energy oh, man, then yeah. opens opens that door too even further. Well, think about like, if we go back to the conventional model, there's nothing around driving more energy into the cells. Like we're, we're making it a very heady cerebral experience, you know, like there's shame, there's disappointment, there's frustration. There's like, oh shit, here we are again. We're like another relapse. It's so cerebral. It's not experiential at all. And what would it be like if physiologically, you know, we sort of like, we understand that there's a mental emotional process going on and let's just, let's just keep that here. We know that that there's something there. There's your story. There's the reason why you're here. There's the trauma, all of that. And while we're appreciating that, maybe we don't even have to dive into it. Let's just teach you how to build cellular energy. So, so that then now you have more resource, more choice. And what does detox look like? I mean, this is the whole role of NAD, but what does detox look like when your when your cells have more energy to detox? What does what does it look like when your brain has more like less brain fog? You know, oh, I can actually listen and learn now. Whereas before, I was like, you know, I just need to know how to get out of this uncomfortable space that I'm in, right? So yeah, I think that's that's where uh, you know you guys are talking about this. Like that, we definitely talk about this. I think that's where we have an opportunity to really honor this physical vehicle that we that we have, and how do we put some energy into that? 
and that's the nutrition, the fasting, the, all the fun, you know, uh, recovery tools that we can optimize, uh, even nootropics, like things to optimize brain function. And, you know, so, yeah, I think that that's where the, the, the energy needs to go. Yeah. Uh, this is absolutely my number one problem for me. Uh, when I was trying to, uh, the first time I tried to uh, just kind of cold turkey off of uh, yeah. opiates, uh, I did that uh, with pharmaceutical support. Uh, I had a supplement regimen, all that kind of stuff, but it wasn't enough because I, I still didn't, well, there was many factors involved, but the main factor was I hadn't seen what Corey's talking about with the window. You're talking about with the window. I call it the trap door in the cell under the rug. If you don't know that that's there, you're not getting out. And when you're in that state of hopelessness, which is you you reach a level of despondence where it doesn't matter what somebody offers you. You don't believe them. You think, Oh yeah. You think you, you, you can fix me? No, can't be done. And once you, you give that person just a little bit, maybe it's because you got them back up to 25% of their natural uh, endorphins and kephalins, whatever. It, it just, it gave them enough relief for that moment. So they started to think there was just a little bit of light, just a, a glimmer of hope. And for me, that's what I needed was that uh, I needed to know it was possible. Well, I think, you know, sometimes, I mean, all of us, I think we all grow up, uh, you know, our, our physical bodies grow, but our, our emotional bodies, you know, we've never been, whether it be initiated into a, a new type of thinking, you know, we, we get indoctrinated <laughs> into the school systems and we become really good rule followers until we want to break the rules and realize that we don't like the rules. But our, our graduation through our emotional body is, is really limited, I think. And so, you know, I, I use the, I would use the example of, you know, imagine you're, a, so I've got two small boys. Uh, actually, my son came into our bedroom last night because the, the wind was so loud and, and, and it was, you know, making noise in his room. And maybe he interpreted as that as someone like breaking in, or maybe he interpreted as like, there's a scary monster there and I don't want to be near him. And, and that, and that obviously he, he grows up, he realizes that's just the wind and maybe it's the, the window banging against the, the frame or what have you. And, oh, I can solve that problem. I can just go over and close the window. Everything's fine. But he came into our bed, of course. And, you know, I think of that sort of analogy with when we're stuck and that narrowness of our focus of, of all that we know is the suffering that we're in right now. We're kind of like that little boy, that little girl who's interpreting what's going on as something so heavy and so uh, uncomfortable. And we only ever have one tool. In my son's case, he had to leave the room. Maybe in someone who's in, you know, relapsing, whatever, it's the bottle, it's the drug, it's the, the marijuana, it's the, it's the food that just takes you out of that moment because that's the place of safety. And really what we're, what we're allowing people to do or what, what people are allowing themselves to do is just have more faculty. They can, Oh, well, that's just a, that's just a window banging against the door. Oh, this, this, this is, I'm just getting myself into a cycle of addiction again. I know how to pull myself out of that because I can look at it from a different, a different angle. So I think, yeah, that emotional growth and the, the physical, like the physical vehicle, as we embody more of that cellular energy. I mean, I think it's, it's all of these things. We have more perspective, more ability to look at things from different angles. Yeah. Is that something, is that something that you, you talk about with your clients or teach about sort of uh, t- maybe taking an inventory or, or doing a, a self check-in to even recognize? Cause I'm, you know, I, oh, yeah. I, it makes me think that there might be days where certainly early on where I wasn't even wasn't checking in with myself yet of if I even had more energy, am I actually feeling better today? How did I feel after that long walk or long hike or whatever it was? So how do you kind of incorporate that? 
Yeah, well, we, we definitely, we encourage people to have a great question. I mean, we, we encourage people to become their own doctor, you know, start asking questions. You know, we, we usually go, I, I call it the own formula observations versus meaning. And we're so busy making meaning of things through the day, <laughs> you know, everything there's meaning in it, right? Of course there's meaning in it, but we we're not observing it. We're not tracking it, you know? So we usually get people that, you know, track your bowel movements. What's your energy? Like, how'd you sleep? What'd you eat? You know, how'd you feel after you ate? You know, what, what, what kind of conversations did you have that day? Like, were, were they volatile? Did you learn something? Did you, are you feeling resentment? You know? And so a tracking sheet of just, and then getting in the habit of observation, you know, I mean, that's sort of like present time consciousness too, I guess you could call it. But I think if there's criteria, even temperature checking, you know, if there's, if there's objective measurements you can take a look at to see how your physiology, your body's actually responding to your environment, you can get a lot more like a doctor. You can get a lot more investigative with what's happening. And then, and then we don't have to, like, we can just suspend meaning for a period of time, you know, because the meaning drives our behavior, right? Uh, Tony Robbins says this, he's like the, the three things, like, what are you focusing on? So that could be the someone coming into to the center for the first time. What are you focusing on? Uh, well, like my, I hate my partner. And every time my partner does this, I drink. And so like, that's what we're focusing on. So you're giving meaning to that moment. So that's the second thing. Like, so first thing, what do we focus on? Second thing is what are we giving meaning to it? So, well, that person is driving my behavior. They're the problem. This is the solution. That's the meaning that I've created. And therefore I'm stuck in the cycle of addiction. It's their fault. And then, and then the third thing is the behavior that accompanies that meaning. And so I think if we can remove ourselves from meaning making and just get into observation, we can start to, you know, close that gap and move us into an appropriate direction. But yeah, I mean, we encourage that for everybody, but again, you know, people have to be willing and wanting to, to be open to that. I'm, I'm learning Spanish right now. I took Spanish in college and we had a chance to go travel and, and, and it's just like, I love being in that language. I love listening to it. Like, it's just fascinating to hear different languages that you really, really love and you wish you could speak. Uh, I suck at it, but I'm still willing to learn it, you know? And, and that's that apprenticeship phase. I think that we can all either take part in or, or, or just want to you know, deny it and, and, and get a far, as far away as possible from that apprenticeship phase. It's a very important phase. I consider it to be part of uh, one of my primary tenets, which is vulnerability and yeah. willingness to be vulnerable, willingness to look stupid. It's a, you know, that's a tough one for me because I, yeah. I, I don't know, you know, I, I want to, if you're not, it's the difference between, uh, I think, why one of the reasons uh, kids are so malleable. I mean, we know that they're willing, they don't care if they're looking stupid. They're just out there having fun. And they you know, half the time they don't even realize they're, they're learning. They're just living in the, in the moment of their experience, but it's very important. I also have, have tried to learn Spanish multiple times. Uh, and I'm currently not trying because I'm <laughs> frustrated, but yeah. I feel the same way about the language. I, I love the language and I wish I could speak it. I should well, just we, we all, that goes back to traveling, right? Yes. More travel, more travel. <laughs> so I guess what, what we'd really like to provide here for people is uh, we, we want to kind of pick your brain a little bit about some of the specifics that you, uh, that you guys use. Now, I know that's going to, like you said, that's a reductionist uh, approach right away, you know, and that's, uh, that's kind of. That's our culture, I guess, but uh, I'm, sure I'm, sure, I'm sure you're used to that. But you've, you've mentioned a few different modalities here. The one that uh, that I've really been interested in and have uh, been using myself is NAD+. 
And I think lots of people have, have kind of heard of that by now. It's a, a, a coenzyme that's uh, important in all sorts of uh, cellular metabolic and anabolic processes. And you use it at the clinic specifically for people who are in, is it just early treatment or do you have one for patients who are still suffering from post-acute withdrawal, stuff like that? Yeah, well, I, I, I really embrace the model that uh, Dr. David Sinclair talks about. He's one of the like preeminent researchers on NAD. And he basically, he's, I don't know if I totally agree with this, but he's sort of labeled aging as, as the disease. Right. You know, I've heard this. Yeah. It, yeah. And what a, what an interesting way of looking at things, you know, so if you look at cardiovascular disease, dementia, Alzheimer's, you know, typically diabetes, although that is happening younger, so many of the illnesses that we see are a result of aging and, you know, the, the, even the, the process of addiction, we're usually not becoming self-aware at 13 or, you know, 15, even, you know, at some point there, there has to be some sort of time, I guess the, the lapses. But anyways, going back to NAD and this sort of role in this disease or this aging process, you know, maybe in our 20s or 30s, we might have, you know, 70 to 80% of our NAD supply. But by the time we're in our 90s, we've got 98% deficiency. You know, we're, we're, we're a fraction, a very tiny fraction of where we were when we were younger. So just that alone, we, I, I like to look through the lens that NAD is a vehicle for change. It's a vehicle for healing. And if, again, going back to like faculty and having resources and energy, if we, if that molecule is depleted, it's really hard to heal. You know, if you want to, you know, knit your, your bone together or your skin, or you want to heal your cardiovascular system, or, you know, you've got this microcirculation issue because uh, diabetes and the sugar overload, and, you know, you need energy to clean up the body. And so that's just, that's just sort of the first tenet is like looking at this aging process and how fast are we expediting ourselves towards aging, whether it be like the bottles of alcohol every day or the medications that are shutting down liver function, we're, we're expediting our aging process. And I see that with all the little insults that we choose and, and that we don't choose the environmental toxins being one of those. So NED really is that, that foundation. And then metabolically or chemically, I think it's fascinating to think that, you know, it, it occupies some similar receptor sites to um, morphine and some of these other things. So it, it binds to the mu opioid receptors in the brain. And so it, it actually takes up residence to facilitate this reduction in craving, which is very noticeable. I mean, on a sugar level or just a, a satiation level, when I've done, you know, rounds of NAD in a row, I recognize that when I'm finished my meal, my meal is done. Like there, I'm not looking through the cupboard. Like, did I get enough for dinner? You know, it's, it's an efficiency that comes through delivering that food from mouth to, to organs that is enhanced when you have enough fuel supply to be able to, to make that uh, ATP happen inside the body. So, I mean, there's many other things, but I think those two are huge, two huge ones in that recovery model, having more energy and then changing the landscape of craving. Yeah, I, I just got to jump in here because uh, this is, uh, for one thing, the, the craving, I, I, I couldn't, well, let, let's start with, I, I totally agree that, you're, that our, with our current treatment options, we don't look at things like this, even though there's mountains of evidence to suggest that it will help you, like you said, get to that point of uh, maybe reaching clarity faster or having the faculties to see options that you couldn't see. It is, like you said, all cerebral, all focused on talk therapy, Behavior, this type of yeah. stuff. Why on earth would we not provide these 
these supplements. When I was in that uh, in in the first states of early withdrawal and uh, where post acute was just starting, I was begging for something like that. I didn't know it was there, mm-hmm. and I can tell you from my personal experience, I was quite shocked because I just did a an infusion, my first one this year, and then I did another, the the bigger one, the five hundred one. But both of them, and I'm you know I I didn't even realize that the, I could improve this factor, but that craving. I stopped reaching for things like I, I, it did something that, that actually made a noticeable difference right away in that whatever is driving my mind to self-soothe that anxiety or angst. And I was quite surprised. Like you, you don't see something that, that has that kind of an effect. Usually that's just out there and available. Why aren't people using this? This should be something that is standard at treatment centers in my opinion. Yeah. Yeah, I've got a, I've got a dear friend. Uh, he's a colleague, and he was struggling with with alcoholism, and and uh, he was sort of picking my brain a little bit. And it was it was night and day. I mean, obviously, he still had his journey and his and his story and the, the emotional things he had to go through. But NAD was the instigating factor to to help him get his life back. And he's really sweet. He sends messages every once in a while, just you know, letting me know how he's doing and 15 months sober now. And um, I love hearing stories like that. And and I love the awareness, even when we're post-acute, you know, I think sometimes, especially in the recovery model, I think uh, I kind of think, oh yeah, I dealt with that. I'm recovered, but there's, there's so much recovery that still needs to happen. Big you know? and mistake. Totally. Yeah. And, yeah. It's, and it, it, it's not, go ahead. it's, it's not illuminated properly. No. I think because of, we've discussed this before, Corey, right. With the, uh, the way our media portrays uh, the acute withdrawal, nobody ever talks about post-acute uh, nobody cares about it. It's, you know, uh, some people don't even believe it exists, mm-hmm. but I'm, I'm telling you post acute is the thing that gets people, yeah. you know, anybody can tough it out for a couple of weeks. Uh, of, you know, it's basically like having a really bad flu. People can do that, but it's the one year or two year, these long protracted symptoms. Why can't I feel better? Why can't I feel anything? Why can't I connect with people? And if you're not aware of, of how that, that long-term condition is affecting you. It's a big problem. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I found real uh, deep friendship and in, in meaning in, in um, one of my dear friends, uh, Tommy Rosen, and he's got a, a beautiful recovery community called uh, recovery 2.0. And he teaches through the, the landscape, the lens of yoga and Kundalini yoga. And he's got a beautiful community and, and, and it's really, it's like a container. So I love when people, whether they're coming in through the door of the acute or the post-acute, but to have some sort of uh, philosophical lifestyle community, you know, that all that, that connection is so important. And sometimes that's just the thing that helps people get off of, you know, and maybe initially they came in for the the drug addiction or, you know, whatever, porn, whatever it might be. But then they started to realize all these other attachments and addictions that were playing a role in their lives. And, and that's just like, it's like cutting the cords uh, of, of, of those attachments that are holding us back. And so, yeah, the, the post-acute is, is huge because that's your life. Like that's, that's where you get to like, okay, finally close that door or graduate out of our, you know, our childhood emotional attachment to the, the trauma and, and the escape. And now we get to graduate into who we actually are becoming. And, and that often, you know, uh, we see, we see people and not to, to not say anything bad about AA, but we see the people at the meetings puffing away on their cigarettes, you know, not doing anything about their physical vehicle, you know, overweight, you know, so obviously food addiction, insulin resistance, all those other things. 
that, you know, you just trade, not trade, you graduate maybe from one addiction to another, or you, you replace it. And, you know, it's, it's pervasive. It's because we haven't given people the appropriate tools to work on the physical form as well as the, the behavioral one. Could not agree more. Um, and I, I also, I think that one of the reasons people do find solace in, in uh, 12-step groups, one of the, the, the good things, the positive things about it is the fact that there are people out there who- Community. Community. Absolutely. Yeah. It's, it is those connections. And, and if that is, you know, maybe for some people, that's 50% of the problem. They just don't have the support network in which that, uh, that group is a fantastic option. It's, it's there and they know the, yeah. the, the people are going to be there. Uh, and and, and accountability. Really well. I mean, there's, I think there's off the top of my head, three big things that I think it's, is nailing with, with an immense positivity. And that's the community that's the accountability with, uh, with the sponsor. And then it's, um, uh, then there's some connection to, well, it's a deep connection to spirituality. You know, the, the, the steps are really a, a process of helping a scaffolding, a way of understanding how to move through something. You know, it's kind of like allowing you to move from that child, childlike behavior into something greater. So I, there, there's definitely, there's so much positivity there is, you know, it's just, there has to be other things too that support the physical vehicle. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. I had a question about, about NAD with, and it may be relevant to our, to um, some of our listeners. Are there concerns with, with liver toxicity for someone who's had long-term alcohol use or long-term uh, opiate use, or maybe they have developed hepatitis or, or any yeah. other kind of complications? With, with that, there, the, from what I understand at this point in time, and please, if people are tuning in, correct me or please, you know, post a comment, but um, NAD is, is vital to cellular function. And other than like intravenously taking it and having a really uncomfortable time, because, you know, let's be honest, it's uncomfortable getting the IV there, there really isn't contraindication because it it's, it's a nutrient that your body needs in order to heal the hepatitis. Uh, B3 is needed to, to work on alcohol dehydrogenase, the enzyme that breaks down alcohol. And it's, it's rightly indicated to be given to help support recovery. So I have yet to see a role <clears throat> where NAD can't play, excuse me, in, in this process because it's just is vital to, to cellular functioning. Yeah. I think especially for people with, who are having trouble with alcohol, just because of the nature of, like you said, the, the enzy, uh, enzymatic process, uh, uh, certain enzymes get exhausted. We know what it does to your uh, natural supply of B vitamins. And again, why on earth is this, if you've got a problem with alcohol, one of the first things you should be doing is, is trying to correct those cellular imbalances. And NAD would be the, uh, I mean, that would be the, the go-to yeah. And, and there's different forms, right. You know, for people listening that you can do oral, do the precursors. Uh, there's a product that's maybe newer on the market called uh Pricera, which is a recycling. Uh, it, it recruits a different pathway to recycle what's endogenously there. And then there's pository, there's patches, there's obviously the intravenous, there's subcutaneous, there's all sorts of different ways to get it. And I think that, you know, from a cost benefit point of view, it could just be starting with niacinamide, you know, the 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 B3 molecule itself, uh, the more active form of it, I should say. And and I think it's <clears throat> it'd be silly not for anybody to just start even just there. Again, yeah, I, I agree with that. And that's uh I learned that from a uh a really good uh 
a skin doctor here who works primarily with uh, cancer patients in Kelowna here. And uh, he, he recommends that for everybody who's, you know, the, the treatments that they do require extensive healing. Yeah. And uh, he, he always prescribes nicotinamide. And uh, I started taking it because of that. And uh, I think that's what actually got me started looking into uh, the whole redox Crazy. reaction there. And mm. uh, I, I did want to, I wasn't going to include this because it's it getting a little specific, but I am curious and I'm going to do it anyway. What are your thoughts on the different forms of NAD? I mean, I, I would, I'm guessing that IV is the, the quickest, fastest way to, to replenish. It's going to have the biggest uh, kind of bang for your buck, but is there, is there value? Can you, can you really have good results with oral therapies as well? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, I mean, the, I'm not, I'm not a researcher. You know, all I do is collect uh, the research and then uh, have a, more of an experiential attachment to it through the people that, that, that go through the process. So I'd say there's something really valuable about the, the NAD IV in that there's a hormetic, like a sort of, a sort of stress when you're doing the IV. There's something about an attachment for people to recognize that the therapy they're doing is doing something in their body. Mm. So I think bang for your buck, part of it comes from having a really deep, profound, uncomfortable, and yet victorious experience of NAD, you know, cause we go through so many different emotions when we're getting the drip, like, well, this feels really uncomfortable. It could be racing hard. It could be sweating. Could be, I know every time I do it, I, I sneeze immediately. I feel pressure in my sinuses. I feel like an elephant sitting on me. And I, I really, it would take an incredible amount of effort just to move my arm and the pressure in the body is really intense. So there's, there's some sort of connection, I think, that's profound in the sense that we feel a therapy. You know, you feel a sauna. Saunas are amazing, and there's incredible mm-hmm. research on saunas and what it does for the body, but you feel the sauna. You know, you feel an NAD drip, and that's, that's, that's part of the value. And obviously, you're getting in the blood, so it's going right, you know, it's 100% absorbed. There's, you're, not, you're bypassing the GI. You're by, bypassing the liver breakdown. So I think efficiency-wise and definitely in the acute withdrawal period, uh, or even people just want to build cellular energy. I mean, you you get that sense that it's doing something. So yeah. there's huge value in that. No, from what I understand, like I said, simplicity, the niacinamide, the there's the B3, you know, 50 milligrams a day apparently has great sustainable support for building NAD levels. Um, I think you there's some data to show that the NR nicotinamide riboside or the NMN, they are direct precursors, but it, it, in some of the research I've seen, again, I think everyone who's listening should just do their own as well. Talk to different experts, but it seems that it burn, starts to burn out some of the antioxidant pathways. And so there's, there seems to be over time, some reduction to glutathione. And there's an interesting paper, which I can share with you guys. Uh, whereas the Pricera, the recycling uh, form of it, where it gives supplies and energy. So Pricera has ribose and the niacinamide and uh, something else, oh, palm oil. So a, a fat. And that, that works on a different pathway that is not energy requiring. So interesting enough, the NR and NMN require a unit of ATP in order to support delivery mm. and, and utility, where the recycling pathway just allows the body to recapture. And then through that process, actually sustain and rebuild glutathione. Uh, obviously, for those that don't know, that's a really important liver antioxidant, brain antioxidant. It has many roles in the body. So I thought that was fascinating. Yeah. Who's the genius? 
chemist who came <laughs> up with that. Right? <laughs> this guy figures out, ah, we're wasting an ATP here. We got to do right. something about this. <laughs> no kidding, right? <laughs> that and is again, like, uh, I need to dive into that deeper too. And I, I think it's worthwhile looking at. But at the end of the day, I think that that's probably a process that eventually gets there. You know, I, I think short term, I don't even know if there would be really an issue. And I think you probably get gain more than you lose anyways. But yeah, yeah probably, I, I agree with you. But, what a genius. Uh, I mean, to, to, to do the work on that is on a cellular, like on a molecular level, that guy must have been or, or woman or whoever it was. Hat tip to that person. That's uh, that's really going the extra, extra do, mile. Don't you feel like with, I mean, there's, I find it interesting in communication, especially with science, there has to be some level of trust. Because a lot of this information gets passed down. You read a paper, maybe interpret it slightly different. It's like a game of telephone. However, like there's definitely people, there are, there must be people actually diving in and doing this really interesting research. Us more lay people outside and more in the clinical or what have you, we don't know all those details. And so you, you know, couldn't possibly if you wanted to. to. Exactly. Yeah, it, it, this is the thing. And it it is difficult. There's two factors that are, are are maybe more challenging these days than than ever before one is the volume of information we have access to and the other is the loss of integrity with, uh, from some of our big regulatory bodies and uh, sources of science that were unassailable before are all of a sudden un- under suspicion you know and i that that has made my job more difficult uh as a healthcare professional and just in general, I've, I've, I've found it difficult to, to find high quality data, new data. And I'm, I find myself questioning it and, and having to spend more time looking at like uh, uh, sources of uh, financial parties oh, yeah. and stuff like that. I mean, I, because some biases, of the stuff yeah. is, yeah, the biases are obfuscated to the point in some cases where I, I just, I got to throw them out because I can't, you know, what am I supposed to do with the information? And it's a shame because there's probably tons of valuable uh, studies out there that are not seeing the light of day because of financial factors. But well, I mean, um, like there's there's a, an incredible history there. I mean, like the the amount of lawsuits against Pfizer, Merck, or some of these other, you know, whether it be for the uh, the pain meds, you know, to uh, Vioxx, to I mean, more recently, June 17th of this year, the EPA finally lost in court uh, regarding the safety of glyphosate. Yeah, it's so, insane. It's, it's, it's crazy. It's crazy. Yeah. So think about like there's this there's this essence of time when it comes to safety of different things, products that are getting rolled out. And us as physicians, healthcare providers, you know, pharmacists to medical doctors to nurses to everybody, we're mandated to follow the regulation body, even when they're wrong. Yes. Like that's how crazy it is. So obviously, you know, NAD is not under um uh, I guess a patent or a, a control. I guess you could say everything that happens in a, you know, compounding pharmacy is sort of off label, or or maybe it's off label to some degree, just because mm-hmm. it's being compounded. But I mean, to think that uh, us practitioners and or people, you know, teaching and researching that that if we recommend anything against or not even against that just not is not being spoken of, where does that land for people? Especially when people are looking for trust and wanting to know whether or not something's valid. And 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 what I always encourage people to do is like at the end of the day, you know, we've got this basis of knowledge that's called science. And then we have our own experience, things that we can actually speak to. Like I know that this mug to me anyways, looks blue. 
and uh, there's silver on top and the bottom. Telling people something about, you know, NAD is like really just spouting off research that I, I've just memorized. Yep. <laughs> right. But then I've had my own experience of NAD and I know the repercussions of getting it. And that's where the value is. And so partly people have to enter into a bit of trust and step through that door of willing to have an experience. Yeah. Uh, go ahead, Corey. As I was looking at uh, the communication that, that Nathan had had with you before, and you had listed a few other, a few other uh, treatment regimens as well, you know, like use of saunas yeah. or enemas. And I don't know if you're, if you're talking about uh, like hydroclonic therapy in that case, or if it's that something too. else. I mean, do it, do, do it the cheapest way possible. If you can do it at home, right? No, the, the enemas, some people might do better with colon, colon hydrotherapy, but yeah. Yeah. Sorry. Carry on. No, I, yeah. my point is just that these are all things that do give a fairly immediate result in terms yeah. of feeling, feeling a difference afterwards. Totally. And, where it's a little bit less, you know, we've talked in the past about, and no, no knock on, on um, things like antidepressants or, or pharmaceuticals, but where the results aren't necessarily as, as tangible or as readily uh, noticeable yeah. for, well, for everyone. They may be for some, but for some, they, they say, is this even, is this doing anything for me? Why am I on this? Yeah. Um, and and well, again, so trust can waver that way. Trust and experience yeah. for sure. Yeah. I mean, especially when it comes to the, the antidepressants, some of these things are, they're performing as good as a placebo. So if people <laughs> what, knew, what's actually happening? <laughs> if, yeah. if people knew the numbers needed to treat on some of the meds that they were spending money on, if they really understood what was going on and how little effect they were having, I think the public would have a, a complete freak out. Yeah. If, the, if you could somehow get the, the point across uh, in a way that was understandable all at once, you know? It's, uh, they're not what you think. I mean, we have our, our good old fashioned antibiotics. We have our, uh, you know, we have our heart meds and blood pressure meds and stuff. We know there's, there's obviously effect. It's just, especially with some of these psych meds, the effect is not, uh, I mean, I've seen many trials where antidepressants have, have been less than overwhelming. Um, that being said, I'm taking, I'm on 150 milligrams of venlafaxine and I have been for a long time and I can't get off. It's very difficult. It's, uh, I've tried tapers, all sorts of stuff, but, uh, yeah, I mean, you bring up an interesting point and, and I think sometimes, I mean, there's always a role for things mm -hmm. and then, and then at some degree, you know, physiologically, habitually speaking, uh, biochemically, hormonally, there becomes uh, sort of like a merge point mm -hmm. or, or an attachment to it. Yes. And, and, you know, physically, biochemically, mentally, emotionally, all those things, when, when there's uh, a new sense of withdrawal or, you know, there's a fight or flight response, the, the brain goes into, you know, that fight or flight and we need to find our way out as soon as possible. So, yeah, you bring up a really interesting point. And, and again, to, to Corey's question too, that's where I think there's all these other roles for these different things, you know? And so we will do brain mapping and, and you know, run ECG to find out where, People are neurologically stuck, you know, the saunas, of course, the enemas, hyperbaric oxygen therapy, red light, the beamer, you know, working on all the different ways of communication in the body from hormones to, to blood flow, to the mitochondria, to, to the oxygenation and beyond. Uh, I think that's where you, we want a full team working with us. It's like uh, if you look at a NFL team, like you've got the defensive coordinator, the, the offensive, there's the head coach, there's like, there's all these mm -hmm. intricate parts that allow this team to operate. Right. And I think that that's the way to look at things. You got your pharmacist, your GP, you're, you got the biohacking, the nutrition, you've got the ND, the chiropractor, your, what's your team 
look like you know and and if you're leaning one way how do they how does someone help just prop you up and get you to where you need to go and, and nathan in your case like your story's not done right that's just your reality right now right yeah you know? yep that's true and yeah. uh i mean i you you talked before about how none of us were perfect and uh we can have the best intentions and uh i mean that's you're you're absolutely right there what i tend to do is is I, I do keep track of, of where I'm at on a, on a fairly basic level day to day. And I look at more of where I'm trending. Mm-hmm. I know I'm going to have off days. I know I'm going to, there's going to be stresses. There's going to be things, unexpected things I don't know are coming, obviously. But uh, as long as I continue to trend in a direction yeah. that's positive, then I know that at least my system or framework is, is getting me to the, toward, uh, further towards the goals that I want to achieve. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I think like so many of us, we just keep referencing where, where we're stuck and mm-hmm. we keep referencing the trauma and our story. And we don't, we don't like you're writing your, your own story each day, you know, with your observation and, and noticing the gains and noticing, you know, what you're letting go of. But I think, you know, when we're stuck in that cycle, that frequency of addiction, we just keep finding ways to, to remember the pain and, and be in the suffering. Well, yeah, uh, that's powerful. I hope our listeners hear that. I almost wish you, you know, if I'm, if I'm re when I'm re-listening to this episode, I'm going to go back 15 seconds and listen to that twice. I think there you go. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, me too. Yeah. <laughs> Guys got it on repeat. <laughs> I, I, when you, uh, you, you brought up the hyperbaric, uh, oxygen therapy or, and, and mm-hmm. the hyperbaric chambers, it made me think I re- I'm old enough to remember, um, in the nineties when it was the, the Vancouver Canucks were one of the first sports teams to have a hyperbaric chamber. Yeah. And, uh, and they got in a lot of trouble for it. They were really criticized and other teams thought that they were almost, they were almost accused of cheating, hmm. you know, trying to, trying to get the edge in that. What we know now too, as it's been exposed in time is that the use of opiates and narcotics within professional sports is, has been rampant for many years and is only now coming into the light and at the time this hyperbaric treatment was considered radical and inappropriate and mm-hmm. and it's now just, they're everywhere now they're everywhere and <laughs> and 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 now the light is on how horrific opiates are for us and and yeah it's just kind of a what, what a turn of events right yeah our yeah, cultural it, priorities are just so out of whack sometimes. It's yeah. and obviously there's political uh, pushes yeah. uh, that uh, that get the public to those points. But yeah, that's 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 pretty interesting how that you know these anything that's not any treatment modality that doesn't offer a real lockdown as far as long term financial return. Uh, anything that you can buy and continue to use without buying any any more whatever to run it, all these things get negative press. Well, I One think of you these- bring up an important point. Like, I think if we were to look at them as businesses, you know, we it might take some of the stigma off them that they're, they're these nefarious groups and you know out for their own interest. But oh. essentially, it's a business entity. It, yeah, yeah, I, I, I don't. Yeah. I'm not saying they're. This, they're yeah. evil individuals, totally. Yeah, the, yeah. But I mean, there's a diffusion of responsibility within a corporate yeah. entity that we know exists, and when it's driven purely by financial uh, motivations, there can be big problems. And I think that's sure. why science is currently in the state that it's in. But one of the things you mentioned here was this uh, Beamer machine for increasing mm. circulation, and I I just want to know if you guys have been using that in the clinic and and what the results have been uh, as yeah. far as 
the feedback? Yeah, so the the Beamer technology, which was uh, developed in Germany, uh, it's a it's a form of PEMF, pulsed electromagnetic frequency. So it's a it's a therapeutic range of frequencies or, or a signature, I guess, that that helps to massively increase the circulation in all the little capillary beds. So our, our body is you know seventy five or our circulatory system is seventy five percent of the cardiovascular system is in our capillaries. You know, if you were to stretch out our um, capillaries end to end, our entire blood network and then wrap around the earth twice. Like wow. it's so vast. It's, it's hard to, exp- it's hard to fathom. And if you were lay- to lay them side by side, the, the arterial venous system, it would cover, you know, a couple football fields or at least one. So like the, the, the surface wow. area that exists inside our body of this blood network is incredible. You know, and we sort of started this conversation about with connection and having energy to heal. What is the way that we connect, you know, the head to the foot? It's through our uh, well, nerves, it's through our cardiovascular system, it's through our lymphatics, right? So we have these systems that create connection. And so, you know, whether we're creating connection to uh, something greater than us, uh, maybe outside or inside, depending on which way you want to orient yourself uh, to that greater connection. Is it within, without, like it's irrelevant, but the point is on the physical level, there's this stream of, or, or there's these lines of communication. And so much of our dis-ease sits in our capillary beds because we can't oxygenate these tissues. So the a reference to the hyperbaric, um, there's poor blood supply. There's a toxicity buildup. So there's a stagnation and chronic inflammation that persists. That could be, you know, gout to diabetic retinopathy to all sorts of other things, but there's a stagnation in blood flow. And so Beamer technology is really about opening up these little miniature highways and super highways in the body so that there's an efficient communication again. And so we liked, what we like to do is pair or synergize these, you know, quote unquote biohacks. You know, we get people to jump in the red light along with the beamer. So you're, you're feeding mitochondrial stimulation and hormonal stimulation into the cells. And obviously the, the light does all sorts of cool things from a redox point of view to the structuring of our water. And, you know, also that's a whole nother conversation, but, and then you get the super highways opened all the way down to the little, you know, towns, uh, like the, the distal tips of our fingertips and all those little communities. And then you go into the hyperbaric chambers with, with this upregulated microcirculation, which from what I've heard is around 16 hours. So you're getting almost a full day effect of this massive increased perfusion. And then you dump your body into the hyperbaric chamber. You're flooding your, your tissues and organs with, with oxygen. And so you're able to heal these areas of the body that just haven't been getting perfused. They're stuck in a toxic state. They're stuck in inflammation. So they're devoid of oxygen. They're hypoxic. And so now you're feeding all those little neuron, neuronal connections in the brain or the liver or the heart or pancreas or wherever it is, you're finally delivering it in the nutrients it needs. And that, you know, that vitamin O together with that microcirculation highway. Man, that sounds awesome. I yeah. would like to get involved. Right? <laughs> and what do people awesome. say? What do people who have, who have been treated with that? What do they say afterwards or over, after a period of time? Yeah, I, I mean, lots of things from uh, improved eyesight to uh, I mean, obviously getting rid of pain. They throw uh, it people, Viagra. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I mean, I've had people with uh, long COVID, you know, that have started to, well, have healed their lungs. They've, they've got their lung capacity back again, you know. And uh, the colleague that, that really got, uh, and this guy's all over the place, his name's Dr. Jason Saunders, he's a chiropractor in the U.S., and he's really helped to facilitate the... <laughs> 
the communication of what hyperbaric does. Uh, his early experience of hyperbaric, he had foot drops or nerve damage in his, in his, I think it was right heel or something like that. He was at a conference. He jumped in the chamber. He was in there for 20 minutes just to trial it out. <clears throat> he noticed he was actually just walking better after going through. And he asked the guys, hey, do you mind if I just hop in there a few more times over the course of the weekend? I'm really considering getting one of these because it's had such a profound effect on my, on my nerve after just a short period of time. And so, you know, by the end of the conference, I think he said he might be 60, 70, 70% better than where he was when he, before he, he came and, and he's gotten to that, but he's, he's literally helped to really put hyperbaric on a much bigger stage uh, worldwide. And he's at surfing events to working with the professional athletes, to you know, being with Dr. Mercola and some of these other alternative health gurus uh, that are just really sharing the, the blessings of, of some of these therapies. So yeah, I think um, it's time to really look at environmental impact. You know, yes. how do we change our internal environment so it's in the right relationship for for health and healing? And we have we have faculty of that. We have we have a capacity to do something about it, uh, but we just need to learn about it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I agree. These uh, these technologies have existed for a while. They've been under the radar. I can't figure out why. And uh, when you're in early recovery or post-acute withdrawal, anything that you can get your hands on that's going to have a noticeable effect, that's uh, going to promote recovery, promote better health, it, it's got to be available as an option. That's the future I hope to see. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, thanks, Dr. Nick. Uh, was, uh, yeah, just uh, really great talking to you. And and I've learned a bunch, and I'm going to do a little more research and uh, look into some of these uh, these names that you've provided and yeah i'm sure we'll we'll chat again definitely definitely and we'll we'll have you guys on our a podcast as well look forward to having a conversation about your journey as well that is great well, uh yeah. you you got a couple podcasts or that you do dr yeah. dad's just a can the you tell us about you with yeah the dr dad's the dr dad's podcast i do with a colleague he's a chiropractor dr david wardy that's like a brother of mine he's in el paso texas so that one's uh like a sort of a playful, fun, scientific, deeper dive, innovation, you know, uh, biohacking kind of a podcast. <clears throat> and then the one I do with my wife, Health Ignited, that's a that's a more inner journey. That's really looking at, you know, the why behind. And it's super fun doing a podcast with your wife because, man, I've learned so much about Sonia that I just didn't know, you know, and or right. these pieces of of her and David too, that I would have never, same for you guys, I imagine, you know, you guys get to develop a relationship in a way where you get to hear people bounce their ideas off the soundboard of the ethers and mm-hmm. hear sort of like what they're, what they're playing with inside their mind. And, and what a, what a blessing that is to be able to do that with a dear friend and, and my wife, of course. So those are the two ones that we do. So yeah, yeah we'd like to invite yeah. you guys into those. Oh yeah. We'd be happy. Be awesome. Yep. Mm-hmm. Um, cool. Okay. Well, I think we'll uh, release you back because you're a very busy guy. Uh, really appreciate you taking the time to do this, Dr. Nick. Uh, and uh, yeah, wish you the best and hope to see you soon. Yeah, thank you so much. And, you know, it was, I always find that it's these little moments in life that, you know, your, your, your dad coming in and getting a chance to connect with him, have these really beautiful conversations with him and your mom and now getting a chance to meet you. Uh, it's, it's been an absolute pleasure. So I, I love the synchronicity of life and how, you know, these different opportunities create connections for, for all of us. So, and Corey, now you're on my radar. <laughs> love it. Appreciate you guys. Yeah. Thank you. All Likewise. Right. Yeah. Yeah, take care guys. Okay. See you everybody. Till Thanks next everybody. Time. See you soon.